Welcome to Across the Margin Podcast. I'm your host, Michael Shields, and on what is our last episode of this unrelenting year, I'm feeling grateful. I'm grateful to all the extraordinary guests we've had on this year to tell their story and to share their passions. I'm continually humbled by who we get to speak to and profoundly inspired time and again. And I'm extremely grateful for you. It means so much to all of us at Across the Margin that you take these journeys with us here. I'm happy to report we have a great deal of fun just ahead of us as the guest list for January is already stacked and onward we'll go. Bringing as many stories and storytellers and artists and musicians and activists and so on your way. I'm also grateful for today's guest. One whose work and whose books have me questioning my worldview in an extremely positive way and compelling me to further open my mind to other people's viewpoints. As on today's episode, I have the privilege to share an interview I conducted with psychologist and professor of ethical leadership at NYU, Jonathan Haidt. Jonathan focuses a great deal of his studies on the psychology of morality, a topic we explore in depth here. He has written multiple must-read books on the topic, but the one we're going to focus in on most keenly here is called The Righteous Mind, Why Good People Are Divided by Politics and Religion. The Righteous Mind is a truly eye-opening and helpful handbook to navigating understanding these increasingly polarizing times in America. In it, a book that the New York Times Book Review called A Landmark Contribution to Humanity's Understanding of Itself, he examines how morality is shaped by emotion and intuition more than by reasoning, and why opposing political groups have different notions of right and wrong. Drawing on his 25 years of groundbreaking research on moral psychology, Jonathan shows how moral judgments arise from not reason but from gut feelings, and he exhibits why liberals, conservatives, and libertarians have such different intuitions about right and wrong, and why each side is actually right about many of its central concerns. In our conversation, we discuss the foundations of morality that help explain what drives humans. We talk about tribalism and groupishness and its role in guiding our actions. We discuss the power metaphor, and Jonathan presents a compelling one that helps drive home the central ideas of the righteous mind. Jonathan also lays out three core ideas that help one understand exactly what moral psychology is, while also spelling out the best way to go about changing another person's mind. And it is not, as one might think, about appealing to reason. Ultimately, the conversation veers toward a truly inspiring culmination as we celebrate the miracle of human cooperation and the joy that can await us when we trade in anger for understanding. So again, happy holidays to all of you, and thank you sincerely. I look forward to our journeys across the margin in 2021. But now, I have no doubt you'll be captivated by this interview with Jonathan Haidt. appreciate you having you on the program my pleasure so the um book we are focusing on today and so much of your work in general really has me um critiquing my own worldview and thought process and i'm also spending a great deal of time contemplating and considering how others think so i'm really really thrilled to talk about this to start um just generally speaking the divide in america seems really intense at the moment 
um, where people don't just have a, a distaste for each other, but see the other side as kind of a severe threat to, to everything, to democracy and beyond. I was wondering if you could speak on contributing factors to this divide, which will surely lead us into many ideas that are present in uh, The Righteous Mind and in your book. So uh, what's going on here? Sure. Um, so we have seen rising political polarization since mm. the 1990s. And the key kind of polarization is affective or emotional polarization. It's the degree to which people on one side hate and distrust the other. And the um, uh, national surveys, the American National Election Survey, shows that it actually wasn't so bad uh, in the 60s, 70s, 80s, uh, and even into the 90s. Um, uh, but one contributing factor is that there used to be conservative Democrats and liberal Republicans. Mm -hmm. The parties were not perfectly sorted by personality type and ideology. They overlapped a lot. And they don't anymore. So now, since the 90s, the people on the other side really are different from you. They dress differently. They have different values on average. Mm -hmm. uh, and so that's one contributing factor is the sorting of the parties. Another is the loss of a common enemy. Uh, nothing unites people like a common enemy. And so it's both the World War II generation was united forever to some extent. Uh, and they basically dropped. They were all almost gone by the 90s. Um, and the Soviet Union as an enemy was gone by the 90s. So there are a lot of factors. I'd also add social media. Oh, yeah. Uh, and this is, this is the one that I think that really helps explain the weirdness of this year, the mm -hmm. weirdness of a president talking about martial law in the White House and all kinds of crazy stuff. Because we now have epistemological chaos. That is, they, we're all connected. Um, and there are not nodes that, that are truth-seeking. That is, there used to be, there was mass media, but it was filtered through television and newspaper editors that had some control over whether what was being said was true or not or verifiable. Mm -hmm. And that's largely gone now. You can have just, you know, crazy groups with all kinds of crazy conspiracy theories that people immerse themselves. So there are a lot of reasons why um, America is so divided now, worse than, uh, well, you know, people, worse than, perhaps than since the Civil War. Um, 1968 stands out as another, uh, another year of mm -hmm. extraordinary division. But uh, what we're experiencing now is, has only a few precedents in our history. Yeah, absolutely. To back up just a touch, to kind of um, give us a, a foundation of what we're going to speak on, um, is in um, in your book, there is um, kind of what would maybe be looked at as the backbone of the book. You present five uh, foundations of morality that um, can, can kind of drive humans' motives and actions. Um, can you talk about what they are? And then we'll kind of lead into how uh, they these you know, they could be paired off a little bit and who, um, you know, uh, how some of these uh, factors are heavy in liberals and others and conservatives as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So in my book, The Righteous Mind, mm -hmm. um, <clears throat> I talk about uh, the history of moral psychology and how I began studying it uh, in graduate school at the University of Pennsylvania mm -hmm. and how it was mostly focused on the development of moral reasoning in the 1970s, 1980s. Um, but I thought that emotion was really much, I'm sorry, that morality was much more emotional, much more based in, in quick intuition. And uh, in my early research, I found that people could would judge something very quickly 
uh, but then they would sometimes have trouble making up a reason to, to back up their judgment, and these reasons were sometimes ridiculous, but just post hoc confabulation. Mm. So I got very interested in what are the emotional and intuitive roots? What, what are we going on here? And uh, from looking at ethnography, that is from uh, reading stories about uh, uh, other cultures, East and West, North and South, you know, large scale and hunter-gatherer, uh, there are certain themes that recur all over the world. Uh, in every human society, there is care and love for mammals. We, we have all kinds of programming to respond to helpless infants, to bond to other people. So care uh, is a is a of a really important moral foundation. It's got ancient biological roots in the attachment system. Like anybody who thinks that morality is that humans are a blank slate, you know that we 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 could we could be programmed to to take on any morality. Mm-hmm. We could believe anything. It's just just wrong. Yep. Uh, we are yep. not blank slates. We we come into this world with millions of years of evolutionary preparation. Absolutely. Yeah. So care is, is one of the most obvious foundations. The, the second most obvious foundation is uh, fairness. Uh, you'll, you will not find a human society that doesn't have a notion of reciprocity, fairness, vengeance, karma, um, proportionality, the idea that somehow what you get out of, a, of participating in a group should in some way be linked to what you contribute. Mm-hmm. If you're taking without giving, well, people notice that. They gossip about it. They don't want to interact with you in the future. So that's a universal um, but, you know, cultures vary a lot in how they implement fairness and the idea of, say, you know, killing, you know, if somebody offended you, can you take vengeance on their son? Mm. Well, in some cultures, yes, in other cultures, no. Uh, so there's a lot of variation in fairness, but there's something there at the root. And that's what began to interest me in graduate school, seeing that cultures are so different, yet we seem to construct, construct these different cultures out of the same building material. So care, fairness, those two are universal, and those are especially tuned up high in, in progressives and people mm-hmm. on the left. Yep. And uh, some people like George Lakoff, you know, brilliant uh, linguist and theorist, say that uh, morality is uh, empathy and that you know, it's, it's, uh, empathy, care, that is really what morality is all about. But when you read ethnographies, you see, no, actually, morality is about a lot of stuff. And more to it. If, you read, if you've ever read the, the, the Bible, especially the, the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament, you know, there's all kinds of stuff in there about purity and menstrual taboos and, all, and, and leprosy and mm. all kinds of biological stuff. There's so much regulation of biological stuff. And when I started reading ethnographies of other societies, I realized, wow, that's the norm. And there's something about us moderns who kind of strips that out. Like, we're the exception. So uh, notions of purity, sanctity. Um, are universally available, but some cultures have really developed, such as the Hindu cultures, uh, and some have not, uh, especially Northern Europeans have kind of, they used to have it, but they've kind of stripped it out. Uh, and then the remaining ones are authority, respect for authority and hierarchy, mm-hmm. um, and loyalty, group loyalty. Mm-hmm. So those are the five most basic uh, foundations. Think of them as taste buds. You know, all of us have tongues that respond to sweet, sour, salt, mm-hmm. bitter, and umami, or mm-hmm. sort of the meat flavor. Mm-hmm. And we, each society has its own cuisine. You know, Mexican cuisine is very different from Vietnamese, mm-hmm. but we all have the same tongues, we all have the same taste receptors. Similarly, moralities vary around the world, um, but we all have the same moral taste buds. And so I began studying um, uh, different societies, but in the early 2000s, as 
polarization was heating up, I began to notice that left and right were becoming like different cultures, different countries with you know different moral cuisines, different U.S. history textbooks, different economics textbooks, different climate science textbooks. Mm. It, we began to be living in different worlds in the early 2000s. So that's what I've been studying since then. Yeah, so those last three you mentioned, the... Um in group loyalty, authority, purity. We see we see that heavily on um, on the right. That's right. Yeah. Everybody has them available to them, and they everybody will use them in their sure. personal life. Yep. But when you look at so the political morality is a is a co construction um, of many people, and it changes from decade to decade. You know what it means to be on the left. It's a different set of issues. Not a little bit than it was 20 or 30 years ago. Mm-hmm. And, same, and the, the right has changed even more. I think the Republican Party has changed very fast in the 21st century. So things change. You, you know, no one individual is the author of it. Um, oh, yeah. But, uh, yes, the, the conservatives, now here we mean just social conservatives. Mm-hmm. Social conservatives generally have a stronger sense of group loyalty, of respect for authority and tradition, and of sanctity or purity. But I should note that you can find it everywhere. So on the left, um, you'll find notions of the sort of the, the cognitive psychology of purity. Mm-hmm. You find certainly applied to the body if you go to like the New Age left mm-hmm. or the yoga left. There's all kinds of notions of chi and the purity of food, yeah. and toxins. That was really that was so, really eye opening to me when you you know mentioned how the right does it with religion, but you see it in the left and and stuff like that. You're talking about in food and and, and what you put in your body. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. That's right. So this is not a story where you know left and right are like totally different human no. beings. Nope. But the, the the political morality that is created by the elites, by the party, by journalists, the, the TV show hosts, um, you know, they are in a sense moral entrepreneurs. They make a mm-hmm. bid for something. They try to moralize something in a certain way, and then you know maybe it takes off uh, and spreads as like a you know like this with mean theory. Uh, or maybe it doesn't, yep. but it's in a constant state of flux. But what we find is that identical twins who were separated at birth and raised in different families tend to be similar on their political leanings. So there's something about now they're similar on almost everything. There's something there's baked something in though. About, excuse me. There's something baked in is what you're alluding to, right? Yeah, I, yeah. I, yeah, I prefer. I don't like to say hardwired or baked okay. in. I prefer to say there's a predisposition. Gotcha. Um, that we're predisposed mm. to, you know, some people are, are predisposed to become liberal. Yeah. Some are predisposed to become conservative. It's not absolute, and they, you know, they might end up voting for the other, voting for the other party. Um, but there is a predisposition, and that's why identical twins who've never met tend to either both be Republicans or both be Democrats. Wild. And they, you know, often will have similar choice of career and similar choice of spouse. Mm. And, you know, all these amazing similarities that you find for identical twins who are reared apart, but you don't find for fraternal twins reared apart because fraternal twins are not very similar to mm. each other. It felt like um, when I watched uh, your TED Talk, which was wonderful, so fascinating, that uh, you were kind of alluding to if a society would, ha- would um, how a culture, society would thrive if um, all, in ideally, if all five subgroups were really present and um you know, leaned on kind of together. And it made me think of the fact, um, well, I saw this idea present in Sebastian Younger's book, Tribe, how, um, yeah. how we need each other more than, than, than I think we're discussed. He was talking about how kind of the conservative mentality, they, 
you know, that kind of keeps us safe and that, you know, the, the idea that, that, you know, they've, they want to be stronger and safer. And then, you know, the, the liberal, um, you know, mentalities, you know, that compassion and caring, and we need all that in a thriving society. And I think that's something that's wonderful to talk about and focus on. Well, that's right. I mean, we're also steeped in the language of diversity mm. and we're also good at recognizing that diversity confers many benefits. It makes things more interesting. It brings in perspectives that you otherwise, you know, that a homogeneous group wouldn't see. And I think that that's especially true for ideology. Uh, you know, so I'm a professor at New York University. I'm in the academic world um, where the ratio of left to right is uh, somewhere between five to one and seven to one overall. But that includes the agriculture school, the engineering school, the business school. If you look at the core areas, like the English department, the, the uh, philosophy department, the history department, um, in those areas, there often are zero conservatives. Um, overall, those fields range from about 20 to 1 mm. to, I think, 90 or 100 to 1 in anthropology. So there are you know, huge swaths of there are so many different perspectives that are just not represented. There's a, real, there's a real danger of orthodoxy, and then orthodoxy corrupts the search for truth. Mm. So I co-founded an organization called Heterodox Academy, mm. uh, which is devoted to promoting viewpoint diversity and, and uh, it, it, not, as, not as a moral uh, campaign, but to improve the science, to improve the scholarship that we benefit from engaging with people who see things differently than we do. Yeah. And oh, and what you're pointing out is, I think I wrote somewhere in the Righteous Mind about how, um, you know, in a society of a division of labor, and if you had a society where everybody was on the left, mm -hmm. uh, you know, there would be a lot of care and compassion, but any virtue carried to extremes, as Aristotle taught, mm -hmm. um, becomes a vice. And you see this in, in, in social justice groups. I mean, they often will end up um, at each other's throats, and it, 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 something doesn't work about it. And you would see it if, if everybody was on the right. Things would be uh, too stratified. They wouldn't change. They wouldn't be adaptable. They wouldn't change yeah. fast enough. Less uh, and they're more prone, I think, to, to various kinds of discrimination. Mm -hmm. So, um, so you know, I see left and right as like yin and yang. And you, you know, or, you know, just the very words, progressive and conservative. Mm -hmm. Well, it's kind of like the gas pedal and the brake. Mm -hmm. You know, if you have a vehicle, you know, Progressive drive change. That's what it's all about. You know, um, progress, change, question, question current arrangement, uh, and and push forward. But when you have the gas pedal and no brake, you tend to have disaster. Oh yeah. Um, you know, and many moralistic revolutions end up in tyranny and mass murder. So, uh, so I, you know, I'm very much. Uh, opposed to extremism i'm opposed yeah. to, i'm a yep. i'm a liberal in the sense of i'm, a, I'm opposed to illiberalism mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. we see extraordinary illiberalism on the right in recent years but you know trump is authoritarian and yeah. trump is uh many of them um are, you know, have a certain kind of a liberalism but we also see it on the left and it's been around for a long time but i in, in universities there are many more illiberal trends now than there were 10 years ago mm. so i like that um that gas pedal and brake metaphor there's a an extremely compelling metaphor that you um, employ in the book that really drives home the idea that, um, you know, intuition um, can drive us more than reason. I want to discuss that some, but I'd love to hear um, you speak, if you don't mind, about that metaphor, which involves uh, an elephant. Yeah. So uh, 
I love metaphor. Oh, um, yeah. Such power. I think, uh, you know, given the literary audience uh, mm. of Across the Margin, yep. I would highly recommend George Lakoff's book, Metaphors We Live By. It's mm. a real classic, and it really has affected many academics who read it in grad school, as I did. I need to. Um, but, you know, he points out that we think with metaphors. We, we can't understand. Uh, it, it, if you're having an argument, well, we use the metaphor of war for, a, for an argument. Mm -hmm. we, we need metaphors to think. And so when I was writing my first book, The Happiness Hypothesis, and I was trying to explain, I was searching for truth in ancient wisdom that, you know, just as I found morality was often similar across the world, I, I found certain ideas about how to live were common across many societies, East and West. And the most basic uh, psychological idea that you find in many places is that the mind is divided into parts that often conflict. Mm. Uh, this is part of what it is to be human. You're, you have weakness of the will. You're divided against yourself. And you see it in other people, too. And so many cultures have come up with metaphors involving animals. And so Plato gave us the metaphor in, in the Phaedrus. He, he analogizes the mind to a charioteer struggling to control two horses. And the charioteer is reason. And two horses are the noble passion, you know, like, you know, courage and, and uh, you know, uh, friendship and love and heroism and uh, self-control. Well, not self-control. Um, and then the, the, um, the other horse is the base passion, lust and gluttony, uh, which is, you know, you need it. You need the sex drive and the food drive. But if uncontrolled, it, it, the chariot crashes. So Plato and uh, you know many of the ancient Greeks thought that reason, uh, you know, reason ought to be in control, and in a well-ordered soul, reason is able to control these passions, these passions. Um, and that's been the dominant view in Western philosophy for you know, well thousands of years. Mm -hmm. uh, but the psychology doesn't bear that out. Um, we're not very good at reasoning, uh, and our reason tends to be overwhelmed by our passions. Mm -hmm. And so there's a line from Virgil, yeah, from, uh, or no, from Ovid. Um, I see the right way and approve it. Alas, I follow the wrong. And so as a psychologist, I was thinking, well, how could that be? Mm -hmm. You know, and so I wanted a metaphor of the mind as being divided between the, the passions and reason. And a horse is the usual metaphor, a rider on a horse, mm -hmm. because, you know, the ancients saw had horses, uh, and they didn't have cars, and they didn't have, uh, you know, so, uh, so I wanted a, a metaphor, but in my view as a psychologist, the, the passionate part is much smarter and bigger than, than a horse. A horse is not very smart. Mm -hmm. And so I picked an elephant. An elephant is very, very big, and an elephant is actually very, very smart. And I wanted the sense of powerlessness of reason, so the metaphor that I invoked uh, in the first chapter of the happiness hypothesis is that the mind is divided like a rider on an elephant, mm. a small rider on the back of a very large elephant. The rider is conscious reasoning and other controlled processes that we can control consciously. And the elephant is the other 95% or 99% of what goes on in our minds. Mm. Um, our brains are, are ancient. Our 500 million years of brain evolution has been going on and they run like sensory processes, uh, navigation, are amazingly sophisticated as they are in other animals. Whereas our reasoning is really pretty weak and easily distracted by passions, by alcohol, by sleepiness. We're not that good at reasoning. Mm -hmm. 
so I thought that the metaphor of, of, a, of a rider struggling to control an elephant was better. And I find that psychotherapists love the metaphor. They find it very helpful in their own work and to communicate to their clients and patients why it's so hard to change. Yeah. Yeah. So with that in mind, um, you know, when we're talking to others and discussions or, you know, arguments um, at worst, it, it it's so it's not best. It's not ideal. And, and it, it seems like that would be ideal to appeal to um, someone's reason. But, you know, from what we're saying, that's not the case. If you did want to change someone's mind, um, how would you go about it then? That's right. This is one of the most profitable places to apply the psychology yeah. is persuasion, mm-hmm. conflict. Um, and once you see that you are a small rider on an elephant and the other person is a small rider on yeah. an elephant, you're not going to direct your remarks to the rider. You're going to direct them to the elephant. The elephant yeah. And this is the most important principle of persuasion is speak to the elephant first. Mm-hmm. So if you come right out and say, now you're wrong and here's why, and here's the proof that you're wrong, I guarantee you're not going to change the person. But if you start off by saying, you know, you know, you conservatives are, I think you're actually right about the importance of the family, or I think you're right about, um, you know, that you know, people need to take more responsibility for themselves. Um, you know, just start off by, or, you know, start off by saying something that you agree with or you respect. Mm-hmm. That instantly tells the elephant, oh, wow, this guy's not just attacking me. This guy's pretty reasonable. And then, um, because our morality is located much more in the elephant, including fairness and reciprocity. So there's a natural urge. If somebody makes a concession to you, well, you might make a concession to them. And then the, the what would have been an argument becomes a discussion, and you both learn from it. And so I have, I used to be um, sort of a typical you know, smart aleck, know-it-all argumentative. It would drive my early girlfriend that drove them all crazy. Uh, I think it still drives my wife crazy. Mm-hmm. But I'm better at it now. Mm-hmm. And it, the same thing is I'm much better at apologizing. Mm-hmm. Um, once I get into a conflict, I'm actually really good at, at ending it because I use this principle. You can get this all from Dale Carnegie, too. Mm-hmm. I, I advise everybody to read How to Win Friends and Influence People. Oh, yeah, yeah. He, he was yep. a genius. He was mm-hmm. an intuitive social psychologist. Mm-hmm. So you can get the same ideas there. But uh, in The Righteous Mind, I, I, and in The Happiness Hypothesis, I tell people how to make a good apology and how to be persuasive. Yeah, you know what? Uh, another thing that that you mentioned that's real powerful too, is um is the patience and listening. I think you sh- sh- there was a research, uh, some research that showed if you just take a couple minutes, um, to process what people are telling you, that people's minds are ac- actually changed um, at a greater rate just by taking that time. That's really great. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I think listening is a good skill. Oh and, yeah. And it's crucial to know, especially in the social media age to realize that when we're talking to somebody, we have, we have multiple motives. And, you know, if you're talking to someone privately, well, you're not showing off. You're not talking for others. You're talking to the person. Yeah. But when you're talking in front of an audience, you really care about your reputation. And in a lot of social media interactions, especially on Twitter, you don't give a damn about the person no. you're talking to. No. You're entirely showing off for the audience. Mm-hmm. And that's why social media discussions tend to be so unproductive. Now, some people are very skillful. And if you use these mm. principles and if you make concessions and you're, you're calm and reasonable, actually, you know, you can see some beautiful interactions. But on Twitter, especially, the, you know, the norm is just nastier and yeah. degrading and, and, and moral posturing or moral grandstanding, it's called. Yeah, yeah, you're right. They're acting like they're on a stage showing off and it's, it's very unproductive often. Um, 
I, re I really want to talk about this because it's clear you believe uh, too much emphasis is kind of put on what we do individually, but focus should probably be, you know, when we're, we're, we're thinking about all these ideas we've been discussing, um, it's probably more important to focus on behavior of groups. Is, is, is that correct? Well, you'd have to sharpen the question. Sure. If you mean, if you mean like, if you're trying to change society, do you do it through education and therapy of individuals, or mm. do you do it by train, changing structural features that, that end up changing how people behave, or that do you try to change norms in groups? Yep. Those two ways are much more powerful. Um, you know, research over, constantly shows if you have any sort of training program or therapy, mm -hmm. well, psychotherapy works for individuals. Yep. But if you, you know, if you're trying to fight racism by diversity training or anti-racist training, and you're trying to change individuals, there's a very, very poor track record. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's true in the long history of social psychology interventions. If you try to change individuals uh, and you measure them on the last day of the course, yeah, you'll find some change. But if you measure them, you know, in a different context the next day, you tend to find no transfer of learning. You tend to find no change. Yeah, yeah. Tell uh, me more about what, what exactly were you asking? I, yeah, I think I was getting towards the idea, and it's just so present within the righteous mind, about uh, how powerful tribalism is or, or groupishness, as you were discussing, and really, um, if, you know, kind of learning um, how to look at groups and how they act is really something that's important in understanding how, um, you know, the behavior of, of the two groups that we're seeing that are kind of competing right now. Yeah, so I mean, let me just summarize the three uh, the three basic uh, um, principles of moral psychology. Uh -huh. and these are the three parts of the righteous mind. The first principle is that intuitions come first and post hoc reasoning comes second, comes mm -hmm. after the fact. So that's the rider and the elephant, yep. uh, where the rider actually is often a servant to the elephant. The rider is not fighting with the elephant. The rider actually does what the elephant wants. We use our reasoning to persuade others not to find the truth. That's the first principle. Mm -hmm. The second principle is there's more to morality than harm and fairness uh, because almost all academics are on the left, and so they tend to, you know, philosophy focus, tend to yeah. focus on harm and you know, care and fairness. Mm -hmm. And uh, if you go anywhere outside of the West, or what's now known as a weird culture, Western, educated, industrialized, rich, and democratic, mm -hmm. um, uh, to use Joe Henrik's term, um, uh, morality is much broader, and that's the, the five foundations. Um, and then the third part of the book is a, an elaboration of the principle um, that we are 90% chimp and 10% bee, uh, by which I don't mean that you know bees had sex with our ancestors mm -hmm. and gave us their genes. What I mean is that um, almost all animals can be best understood in, through a Darwinian lens that focuses on individuals competing with individuals. And for chimpanzee behavior, you know, it's, there's a lot of competition for you know, mating and resources. They're not very cooperative. Um, and you can understand a lot of primate behavior through a, a, you know, a lens of mm -hmm. individual behavior that's adaptive for individuals and passing yep. on their genes. But there are actually more than a dozen species that, that live as a group and that uh, funnel all reproduction through a single individual, a single queen, so they're all siblings. And so bees, uh, you know, bees are, you know, they don't reproduce, only the queen reproduces. And the queen is not the brain of the hive, the queen is just the ovary. And the hive is, in a sense, the, the animal, the a hive is an organism with the division of labor, and it reproduces itself. Mm -hmm. And so um, what I'm arguing in The Righteous Mind is that 
humans are primates, of course, and a lot of our behavior is similar to chimpanzees and bonobos. But we have this weird tribalism. We have this weird ability to come together and function as a unit. We're incredibly cooperative, and especially when we're in conflict. So group conflict really brings out the tribal nature. And it's clear that we had a long period of tribal living. Um, our ancestors were hunter-gatherers for a long time, uh, but um, there was often a tribal element to it, especially once they, uh, once they develop uh, any sort of agriculture or minimal agriculture, they become somewhat sedentary. You get um, civilization, but you also get intense competition between groups for mm. resources. At any rate, the point is that we had spent a long time living in a tribal way, painting our bodies, dancing around campfires. This is the, almost a human universal for a free civilization society. And so um, I side with several other researchers who argue that humans had a period of group selection. That is, we are the descendants, not just of the individuals who beat out other individuals in their group, but all of us on this planet now are the descendants of the groups that didn't go extinct. Mm -hmm. Most groups went extinct. Most groups were killed off or they starved to death. Uh, you know, almost all branch, almost nearly all branches of the human lineage ended nothing, they went extinct. And even uh, humans who were around 100,000 years ago, the great majority of them left no trace because their group starved to death. Uh, all of us are the descendants of successful groups. Mm -hmm. And part of being a successful group is having this tribal psychology. And what's so cool about it is that even in modern Western societies, we don't live that way. We recreate it, and especially males mm -hmm. uh, really get into it. So if you look at college fraternities and their initiation rates, they're very similar to non-Western tribal initiation rates involving fear and disgust and, and you know, uh, pain. Um, um, so you know, we, we, we you know, boys reinvent um, tribal living. And then a lot of sports fandom is, is the same. It also has all these tribal elements. Mm -hmm. And I go into that in The Righteous Mind, the way the, I was at the University of Virginia for 17 years. Yeah. And, um, you know, UVA football is very, you know, college football is you're very tribal. You're talking to a, so, a Hokie right now, a Virginia Tech Hokie. Oh, boy. Okay. But look, you know, yeah. We can, so we, uh, yeah. we know about those tribal <laughs> things right there. Yeah. Well, I'm now at NYU. So it's yeah, okay. exactly. You know. Exactly. No, I found that group selection thing. Um, it, it's so fascinating, but also so inspiring because it just, you know, it, it it's so interesting to see how that, you know, kind of evolved over time, but also the power of cooperation. And you spoke to it a bunch yeah. when I saw you talking, just how we cooperate every day. And I think that needs to be celebrated more. That's right. That's yeah. right. And there's some, some really cool research is on disasters. Mm -hmm. You know, if we were selfish bastards, then what you'd find is that whenever there's a natural disaster, uh, you'd find people would be savage and they would just look out for themselves yeah. and they would try to hoard everything. Uh, and what you generally find is when there's a disaster, people become incredibly cooperative. And some, yeah. Many people are heroic mm -hmm. and they share information. They try to help each other. Uh, you know, with the coronavirus pa look pandemic, the it's different. Yeah, that's, that's right. Yeah. That's right. That's Ted a good quote. Mm -hmm. Yeah. yeah. Uh, you know, a pandemic is different because historically a pandemic turns people against each other. You stay yeah. away from them. They're dangerous and you hoard. And, you know, with coronavirus, we saw some of that. People are hoarding toilet paper. But, you know, I, as, as far as I could tell, 
you know, the great majority of interactions, like the, you know, this was shared adversity on a planetary scale. Absolutely. And, you know, the, you know, some of our leaders behaved atrociously. Yes. Um, and made it a zero-sum competition. Mm-hmm. But as far as I can tell, you know, people generally behave pretty well. And that's in a pandemic, Definitely. which historically does not bring out the best of you. It brings out the worst. Yeah. Uh, but certainly after 9-11, mm-hmm. you know, after Pearl Harbor, um, you know, after any gigantic, you know, forest fires and floods, um, you have overwhelmingly positive behavior, cooperative behavior. Absolutely, there's a lot of lot of beauty that can be found. I've, we, yeah. I've seen some this year, and and there's t- there's pretty rough times. If, if there is beauty that's been bubbling throughout, and people have been looking out for each other. Um, yeah. To kind of uh, culminate right. in a culminate in a nice. Uh, positive way and i just love to i know we spoke on some of it but i just love to hear some more of your thoughts if you had any on how um we can kind of steer towards maybe hopefully um you know healing some of the divide how can we begin to ease some of some of the tensions that are um out there and kind of bring people together i know the challenge is something that might not be feasible all around but yeah. any thoughts you had there i'd love to hear sure oh yeah no i think about this every day oh, good. Uh, i figured so i would break it i would break it down into things we can do as individuals mm-hmm. and then i would and then structural changes that need to be made. So um, so the structural changes especially are in Congress and, mm-hmm. and election reform. Oh, yeah. Uh, you know, um, a lot of the Republicans who are going along with Trump and not, you know, not rejecting his, you know, what he's, what he's doing now, uh, trying to prove that he won and even mm-hmm. discussing martial law to... Enabling. It's is despicable. Absolutely. Um, and a lot of the, I just heard from some political scientists the other day, they think that a lot of the reasons that the Republicans are, are going along with this is because uh, they're afraid of being primaried. That oh, is, yeah, definitely um, the reason. You know, most of our districts are not, in the, in the House, are not competitive. Mm-hmm. But if you don't toe the line, if you if you get the extremists angry, well, who votes in the primaries? It's yep. only 5% of the people. Exactly. It's the people who are really passionate. So you'll get voted out in a primary. So uh, our primary system and our party system is terrible, and it really enhances polarization. If you think about it, the worst number of parties to have in a country is one. That's really bad. Yeah. Uh, but the second worst number is hey, two. two. That's what yeah. we have in America. Yep. Um, you know, if you have a parliamentary system, then they have to form coalitions. They have to be more reasonable. If you don't get, you know, two parties is perfect for bringing out maximum tribalism. So there's all kinds of uh, reforms to the, the way the House does things and shuts out the minority party. Mm. It makes everything a zero-sum game, whereas politics should be positive. So. Uh, so there's lots of reforms that need to be done to our political system and our voting. And there are lots of reforms that need to be done to our media system and social media. Now, in America, we're more limited because the First Amendment um, makes it harder to regulate than, say, in Europe. Uh, and, you know, overall, I'm a fan of the First Amendment, but I, I think with social media, uh, certain changes need to be made, and it's not clear that they're going to be. So, uh, so there's a wonderful book that's going to come out in a few months by Jonathan Rausch mm-hmm. called The Constitution of Knowledge. Mm-hmm. And it's just brilliant in analyzing how it is that we, tribal, religious, um, irrational primates, end up finding truth. How do we do that? And he, he goes through how it is that um, various institutions, you know, universities, journalism, um, you know, intelligence services, how it is that flawed individuals can get together and with certain institutions and rules, truth emerges. That's what I love about being a professor. Is, you know, I'm, I'm reading things, learning things, you know, debating, arguing, learning from other people. 
um, as individuals, we're not that smart, mm -hmm. but if you put us in groups that have good norms for um, uh, for discussion and debate and, and challenging each other's confirmation biases, then truth emerges. And so, um, you know, I think if universities had more political diversity and less hostility to conservatives, they would do a better job of finding truth and be less ideological. So that's another kind of reform. Yeah. Look at any institution, and if it demonizes the minority uh, group of any kind of minority group, it's, it's sick and it's not going to do a good job of finding truth. Um, journalism uh, also would benefit from more diversity. Um, mm. uh, and um, you know, so, um, social media, if we could find ways that you know, that truth emerges rather than the most uh, the most emotional, arousing yeah. bit of news is, is what goes viral. So there's lots of structural changes, and that's what would do most of the heavy lifting. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Uh, but there's also a lot that we can do as individuals. And um, you know, I used to, I spent the 80s and 90s hating Republicans. And I was, you know, I was always a Democrat. I'm still a Democrat, mm -hmm. but I, you know, I was a, you know, on the on the left, and and I really demonized. I thought they're, just, you know, Republicans are just, you know, racists who only care about uh, cutting taxes on the rich mm -hmm. and Ronald Reagan. Um, and it was when I went to um, India. As I talk about in Righteous Mind, I went to India for three months to do sort of a little bit of you know, quasi field work. Mm -hmm. And, and I tried really hard to understand a society that was hierarchical, religious, sex-segregated. Um, and, you know, I think I, I succeeded because you know, they were nice to me and I wanted to like them and understand them. And then, like, literally, as soon as I got back to America, I realized, oh, my God, now I can understand social conservatives. Um, and ever since then, my anger has drained away. You know, I still make judgments. You know, and I think Trump sure. is saying anti-democratic and mm -hmm. not and I, I, Important to note, Trump is not a conservative. Yeah, There's no, no There's connection a difference between there. him and Edmund Burke. Absolutely, yeah, he's a narcissist, and, yep. and um, everything's about him. It's yeah. not about you know the, the principles of the American founding nope. and, and the things that many conservatives mm -hmm. hold dear, which I really admire. Um, so, uh, so there's a lot that individuals can do, and so I, you know, I hope listeners will read the Righteous Mind. Yeah, that, that I get a lot of mail from people who say. You know, it didn't change my politics, but mm -hmm. it, made, it really helped me understand my, you know, my father or my, my boyfriend or something. So, yeah, I was going to say um, the same thing. One thing you can do is explore, yeah, read, obviously read your book and, and you know, your other books. Because, I mean, that is something it's, it's I've been very reflective since. I mean, I've, I've been thinking about, um, you know, how liberals and very much including myself need to kind of get over ourselves and our self-righteousness a little bit. And just it made me think. Um, about what the other side's motives are and, and you know, their, their moral viewpoint in a major way. So that, you know, exploring the ideas Great. that you put out there are is a very important way um, to to help in, you know, in the bigger picture of things for sure. And, and that's why I was so excited to have you on and talk about these ideas. I think they're so important. It's really, really fascinating stuff too. Oh, good. I'm so glad that's the reaction that I, that's what I was really hoping for, <laughs> writing the book. Awesome. And I'll just make a special appeal, because you know, it's clear from your website, the, the fact that you're a literary site mm -hmm. guarantees that the great majority are on the left. Literature oh, and the arts no question. Uh, you know, pulls entirely from the left. You yep. tend to get an orthodoxy. You tend to, mm -hmm. you know, if people who question the orthodoxy get, get mobbed. And, oh, yeah. And um, so I should just share with the audience that um, I have some research done with my former grad student, Jesse Graham, where we asked people to take our moral foundations questionnaire, mm -hmm. um, either as themselves, just fill it out normally, 
or uh, pretend you are somebody, um, you know, that you are a conservative and fill it out as a conservative would, or pretend you're a liberal, someone on the left, and fill it out as they would. And what we found is that, and so we can we see what do liberals think that conservatives are like, and how far off are they from how conservatives uh-huh. actually fill out the morphination questionnaire. And same thing for for you know the the other side. And what we found is that the most accurate people who can they can they can fill it out as either left or right mm-hmm. are centrists. That's mm-hmm. not surprising. Yep. Um, but conservatives were not very far off because conservatives understand liberals. You cannot be a conservative in this country. It's not be a person's country and not be really immersed in what liberals think. Yeah. You know, in school, at university, at literature, at movies, Hollywood, Madison Avenue. You know, all the culture centers are are on the left. Um, and so conservatives understand liberals, but liberals were way off, especially people who, who this self-described as far left, yep. way off. They could not understand conservatives. Fascinating. And that's why, you know, in America and in Europe, you never, you know, you never wake up the day after election day and read, oh, my God, the results were so much more on the left than we expected. Yep. You, know, we did, you never read that. It's always more on the right. Yeah. Um, because you know the culture makers and the journalists, you know, mm-hmm. they don't know, they don't understand. Yeah, um, conservatives don't understand how anyone could think that way. There's and and so if you want to be more effective, mm-hmm. you know, if you want to be a better human being, just you know, understand people accurately, or if you want to be a better activist, whatever your goals are, uh, it just behooves you to yeah. understand the other. And this is one of the greatest pieces of ancient wisdom: uh, is that um, is that we are too moralistic, too quick to judge. Mm-hmm. We need to slow down, listen, understand what's motivating people. And when you do that, you usually find they're actually pretty reasonable, even if the reasons are different from yours. Yeah, I love that. Slow down and listen. It's such a strong takeaway for, from this whole thing and, and just so so important. Um, Jonathan, thank you. Okay, good. Well, that, that might be a good place to, to abs- leave things. So abs- let me, let me just say go on. That, um, that another resource uh, that people can use is um, – uh, I and uh, uh, Caroline Mel, uh-huh. a woman who's working with me on some other stuff, uh, we developed a program called Open Mind. If you go to openmindplatform.org, uh-huh. uh, anybody can use it for free. Mm-hmm. Um, but as I said, changing individuals is hard. It, changing groups is better. And so we created it to be used originally in college classrooms um, so, that, to, so that people would understand each other better and, uh, and have better discussions. Mm-hmm. It takes uh, about three hours total to go through the, the, the various modules, of mm-hmm. it. but it teaches you some of the ideas from the righteous mind. It teaches you skills of talking to people who differ from you. And so if you have uh, you know, an activist group, uh, go to openmindplatform.org, mm-hmm. get a link for your group, send it out to everyone in your group, and you know, you'll learn skills of, of talking across the divide. If you're a teacher and, and you are afraid to bring up certain subjects, uh, or if you have a company, this is now a big deal in, in many companies, uh, in the creative industries, in tech, journalism, museums. Um, they're very, the work, work culture is getting very divided and politicized, um, uh, we've seen especially this year. And so uh, try Open Mind, and it, it should help people get along with each other. It should help you be more productive. I, so, I, I cannot uh, that. So that. That's, people can find, that's you can also op- find information at Open, at righteousmind.com. Okay. Righteousmind.com and also openmindplatform.com. That sounds so cool. I want to, I really no, want to yeah, check org. All right, great. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, I'll share those links in the show notes and everything like that. And you get uh, extra bonus points for all the book recommendations throughout. There's, I already 
uh, jot it down a couple that I have to read. So I appreciate that. And I really, really appreciate your time talking about these ideas and, uh, and just being here today. Thank you so much, Jonathan. My pleasure talking with you, Michael. Good, good luck to you and, and, and the project. Excellent. And happy holidays as well. You too.